My sermon title this morning is Purposed Holiness in the Public Worship of God. Purposed Holiness in the Public Worship of God. In other words, I will be speaking about practical Christian holiness in a specific context, that of the church's worship of the triune God on the Lord's Day. I hope you are developing settled convictions about God's public worship because it is our highest calling both now and for eternity. One of those convictions should be to worship God in holiness. By holiness in the worship of God, I mean two things, and this is really my outline. I mean two things, treating God as holy... And coming as a holy people. My main scripture text to support this is Leviticus 10.3. I'll be reading the first three verses. Leviticus chapter 10 verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron... Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized or strange or foreign fire before the Lord. And now the phrase that explains what unauthorized means, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. This is a rich portion of scripture that contains numerous lessons for New Testament believers. There are many important truths found in this passage, but I want to focus your attention on the part of verse 3 where God says, "Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified." Now your translation may read By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Or, I will be treated as holy by those who approach me. Now let me describe the situation or the context, and then explain what those words don't mean, and then what they do mean. First, these events are part of the very first occasion of corporate worship under the rules of the Mosaic Covenant. In Leviticus chapter 8, God consecrated Aaron and his sons for their priestly work. Then in chapter 9, Aaron offered the initially required sacrifices. First he killed the sin offering and the burnt offering for himself. Next he presented the people's offerings. Then Aaron blessed the people... And God showed his approval of all of this obedience, obedience in worship, by sending fire from heaven 
and consuming the remaining parts of the offerings. This brings us to our verses. In them, the two sons of Aaron, newly consecrated priests, did not act in a holy way. They put unauthorized fire in their censers and they brought it to the altar. Their sin was bringing something God did not command into worship. You see, this fire was common. It was not holy. Rather than following God's instructions for his worship, they added their own choices to it. And in response, well, fire returns. Fire comes down again, and it kills them. God took their obedience, I'm sorry, their disobedience, as an affront to his authority. They challenged his right to regulate his own worship. And he responded in two ways. By judging them worthy of death and by explaining through Moses the principle behind this judgment. And this principle was that Nadab and Abihu had not sanctified him, verse 3a. Now, when we hear the word sanctify, we usually think of the process of being made more holy. To be sanctified or grow in sanctification, in this sense, means to improve in holiness, to put off sin and put on righteousness. But that cannot be the meaning here. Because God cannot improve in holiness. No one, not even priests, can come near to God and make him more righteous. God is essentially holy. That is, holy in himself and in fullness. Indeed, he is not merely holy. He is holy, holy, holy. Even infinite in his purity. He cannot change for the better because he's already perfect. If the phrase doesn't mean God will increase in holiness through the priest's work, what does it mean? It means that worshipers should regard God as holy. They should treat him as sanctified. They should remember that he is the Holy One of Israel. They should respect his right to determine his worship, and then they should obey it. The next phrase confirms this idea when it says, before all the people, I will be glorified. Men cannot add to the essential glory of God. There is nothing they can do to enhance the glory of the Lord. Instead, in worship, they recognize God's innate beauty and worth, and they display it in the ways that he has ordained. So neither holiness or glory is added to God in his worship, but his claims to holiness and glory are recognized, accepted, declared and responded to by believers. In this way, he is sanctified in worship by those who draw near him. And this will of God, 
that he be sanctified in worship is also for new covenant believers. Of course, all of the Mosaic ceremonial commandments in our text are done away in Christ. But the morality behind them goes on. Since God is essentially holy, and since God's worthiness to be worshipped rightly is rooted in himself, his creatures always owe this to him. This is natural or moral law. And so we New Covenant saints pray as the Lord has taught us, hallowed be your name. We long for ourselves and for others to esteem God as holy. To think and speak and act in ways that treat him as holy. Because he is. While true at all times. This is especially important in the church's worship. In part because it is gathered and public. When the Corinthian church came to God's worship, specifically the Lord's Supper, in unholiness toward each other and the Lord, they were condemned by the Apostle Paul and judged by the Lord. He still wants holy worshipers to act in a holy manner toward him. And Hebrews 12 reminds us that our God is still the God of Leviticus 10. He is a consuming fire. He still wants us to regard him as holy in worship. And so he desires that we offer it to him. What does that text say? Acceptably, in reverence and awe. So what Nadab and Abihu didn't do in congregational worship, we strive after. They didn't treat God as holy, nor did they come as a holy people. Now, of course, these two things are related. They aren't really separate things. But distinguishing them can be helpful to our little human minds. So let me make a number of contemporary applications to these two related but distinct ideas. And in both uses, the many particulars are meant to be suggestive, not exhaustive. You may be exhausted at the end of this, but trust me, this is only a small part of the applications that could be made. I have no doubt other applications will occur to your minds. Perhaps I've even missed important ones. But here are some that I trust will provoke your sincere minds to the fear of God and holiness. My first main use then is this. We must strive to treat God as holy in public worship. We must strive to treat God as holy in public worship. In the congregation, we hallow his name. We honor the Lord by acknowledging his purity and transcendence in worship. Part of our holiness is recognizing and acting in accordance with the truth that God is holy. Now we can do this in many ways, and I'm now going to give you five. All right. First, by coming to him in reverent fear. By coming to him 
in reverent fear. The Old Testament scriptures urge God's people to fear him, to bow to him, to make sacrifice to him. 2 Kings 17.36 Psalm 2 urges us to serve or worship the Lord with fear. Oh, we are to rejoice, but with trembling. One of the promises of the new covenant is that God will put his fear into his people's hearts. And when the gospel comes, it teaches us, according to Revelation 14.7, to fear God and give him glory and worship him who made heaven and earth. This fear of God causes believers to tremble before his threats and to treat him with respect in worship. Since our God is a great God, infinite in majesty, transcendent over all, our fundamental response to him must always include awe. And so we come to worship in holy reverence. Divine service is a very formal occasion. We are coming into the presence of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And when we engage in corporate worship, we enter the very temple throne room of God, according to Hebrews 12. And we ought to act like we know where we're at. Now, our culture has few formalities. We tend to turn everything into nonchalant fun. We still think of funerals and court trials, perhaps, as formal. But if you were to add to that list, you'd have a hard time. The true worship of God, though, should always be formal. By formal, I mean it's recognized as an important event. Demanding of our full attention that we prepare for and that follows certain scriptural conventions rather than being only spontaneous. It's centered on someone or something beyond ourselves that deserves high respect. The worship of Jehovah should certainly be the epitome of this. Now, of course... Worship should also be from the heart, and it should affect us deeply. I'm not advocating a stiff, impersonal, unfelt worship. But if we are to strive to treat God as holy in public worship, we must approach him formally, that is, with deep and solemn respect. Yes, it should be joyful for what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. Yes. But it must never descend into silliness or be overly casual or unconcerned. That simply is not treating God as high and lifted up. It is treating him as common and therefore as unholy. It is to commit the sin of Nadab and Abihu in a modern American context. Now, this has many practical applications, and I'm just going to list a few. But it means that we should prepare for worship as we can. Yes. That's true, brother. That's very true. Our dress should show respect to the Lord. Yes. I'm not advocating three-piece suits and spit-polished shoes. And 
But every culture understands what kind of dress is respectable or respectful and what isn't. Don't do that to the Lord, what you wouldn't do at your mother's funeral or some other formal occasion. Our conduct in worship should not be unconcerned or passive or unresponsive or inattentive. You should be sharply focused on your God in all these ways. As we come in reverent fear, we treat God as holy in worship. Amen. Here's a second major application under this first point. By coming to him only in the way of his appointment. One of the ways we treat God as holy is we, when we come to him, only in the way he has appointed. We often call this approach to worship the regulative principle. This is the scriptural teaching that God alone has the right to define his worship. Now he explained the old covenant worship practices in great detail to Israel through Moses. Nadab and Abihu disregarded these And they brought him worship he didn't ask for. And while the externals of New Testament church worship are certainly simpler than Mosaic worship, its parts are still defined by God. Yes. They are defined by God alone. And so we treat God in an unholy manner when we presume to determine his worship. When we bring what he doesn't desire, or don't bring what he requires, then we are not sanctifying the Lord. We are not treating him as holy. You see, self-made religion, as Paul talks about in Colossians 2, doesn't exalt him, it exalts us. And that should make us shudder to think that we would do such a thing in his worship. It lifts us up to his place and does not hallow him. The fact that we may be sincere and even zealous in this will worship doesn't make it acceptable. Because at bottom, we're not treating God as holy. Here's a third one. By coming to him as the chief one present. By coming to him as the chief one present. Now, God is present everywhere in a general sense. He fills the heavens and the earth, and he is even present in hell. But he manifests himself differently at various places and times to fulfill his own purposes. His purpose in worship is to draw near to his people, to exalt himself, And bless them. And so he calls them to worship with words such as these found in Psalm 100. Come into my presence, he says. Examples of this truth are commonly found in the scriptures. I'm just going to list a few verses. You'll have to look these up later. Matthew 18.20. Hebrews 12.18-29. One of the more neglected parts of scripture regarding worship. And 1 Corinthians 14, 25. 
These teach the truth that when the church gathers for public worship, God is present. Yes. Not in the general way. That's right, brother. In the way of grace and blessing. Now, since this is true, surely <laughs> he must be our focus. If God is present, we must, he must be the focus of our attention. He is the chief one present, and he should be treated as such. If Jesus Christ were to bodily appear in our midst right now, you would forget I was up here. Good. <laughs> Good. Wouldn't he have your full attention? You would forget about that ache in your back, that thing you have to be ready for tomorrow, and even the others around you. You would concentrate on him. But the triune God is genuinely present with us when we meet. So if we are to treat him as holy, then others around us in worship, including the saints and guests and our children, they all must be secondary in our thoughts. May we give God the attention he deserves and treat him as holy. This truth that God is the chief one present should even impact our sense of building architecture and interior design. Generally speaking, these surroundings should neither be austere or distractingly beautiful. My wife and I were in Quito, Ecuador a year ago and entered a tourist site that is a four or five hundred year old Roman Catholic building, a church building. Every square inch of the inside of that massive building was filled with ornate decoration, statues and inlays and all kinds of patterned stones and it was overwhelming to the senses. I can't imagine how a person could walk into such a setting and actually not be distracted from the chief one present, God. Right. Now, I'm not convinced God is present there, of course. But you get my point. The circumstances of our worship should support the truth that God is our focus. Yes. Not our emotional response to him. So our use or non-use of colors and sound and props should contribute to treating God as holy. And in all of this, we are seeking to train ourselves to see the face of God most of all in worship. Then he will be sanctified as he deserves. Here's a fourth one. By coming to him every Lord's Day. By coming to him every Lord's Day. Our God has instituted that churches gather on the first day of the week to worship him. This first day, Scripture calls the Lord's Day. 
because it is one that he owns in a special way due to his resurrection. It is his possession. He made the day his by rising from the dead. And so that day is holy. As New Covenant saints, we are not to neglect meeting together on this day. Rather, we treat him as holy when according to his established pattern, we gather to meet with him and worship him. A fifth and final one under this first main point. By coming to him expectantly. Meeting with God always changes us. It does. Because the word of God never goes out without accomplishing its purpose. That means that when you're in worship and God's word comes out, you are either softened or hardened. You either respond in faith or in rejection. It's why the, that hour from about 11 to 12 is the most dangerous spiritual hour of the week in our nation. Because unbelievers come, and when they still stiff-arm God, they are hardened. What God's purpose was for in his word came to pass. And for every believer who sees their need again and in faith loves Jesus Christ more, God's purpose in the word is achieved. Meeting with God always changes us. When we come by faith into God's presence in public worship, his word and spirit work in us. He convicts, comforts, encourages, and strengthens us in the faith. And so we value worship partly because it is the occasion when the primary means of grace are applied to our souls. If we don't believe this, if we come to the worship of God without the expectation of obtaining grace, we are not treating God as holy. We are saying, in effect, no, your presence isn't life. Is that what you want to say to God? No, being in your presence doesn't bring me joy. Your grace isn't sufficient. Your worship isn't a blessing. Viewing your transcendent glory does nothing for me. So as we come believingly, that is with expectant faith, to hear God's word read, preached, prayed, and sung, we are changed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And this is also why we believe his final word in worship, a word of blessing, the benediction. We actually believe that what God says there he means and is happening to us. This is why he has drawn near to us to change us as we come to him in faith. So let's not deny God's sanctifying power in worship, but sanctify him by trusting his ways and coming to worship in hope. Well, that's my first main use. Our second main use is this. We must strive to come as holy people to his public worship. As God is holy, so his people should be holy, especially when drawing near to him to worship him. 
There are many ways to consider this, and I'll give you four, and these will be a bit shorter. First, by coming to him as regenerated and washed saints. And those two words go together. Regenerated and washed go together. By coming to him as regenerated and washed saints. In the new covenant, God's worshiping church is meant to consist of those who have been born again. This birth from above, or regeneration, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Titus 3.5 describes this as the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. In regeneration, the mastery of sin is broken, and a radical change in our moral condition occurs. We go from being only sinners to being declared by God himself to be saints. And we are no longer totally depraved. And so men and women are enabled to become the worshipers that God seeks. That is, those who worship him in spirit and in truth. When we come to God's worship still morally dead, as, not as Christians, but as unbelievers... We treat God as unholy. Perhaps we think, well, I'm not that bad. Or he's going to overlook these little foibles that I have. But that's not what Proverbs 15, 8, and 29 teach us. They say that the Lord doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked. And he does not accept their sacrifices. Instead, we must come in the cleansed newness of the Holy Spirit. Now, this isn't moral perfection, but it is the beginning of that holiness that God requires to properly come into his presence. A second application. By coming to him only through Christ and his righteousness. Men naturally think that God will accept them in themselves, that is, as they are. This is the wrong basis of every other religion in the world outside of Christianity. This is part of the proud self-deception that inhabits unsaved humanity. But because sin has separated us from God, we need a mediator to make things right for us. The Bible plainly teaches that Jesus Christ is this go-between. And that he is the only one. You know the verse, 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. By his obedient life and death for his people, he restores fellowship between them and God. And so we intend to always and only worship through Jesus Christ and his perfections. This means you should go into public worship consciously dependent on Jesus Christ. We not only pray to the Father in Jesus' name, but every element of worship is offered to God through him. Our worship is still tinged, what a polite term, with sin. We need our mediator to purify it. 
As has been famously said, even our repentance needs repenting of. Well, since our holiness is so imperfect, we need a mediator to purify us. So approaching God through Christ treats him as holy. Here's a third one. By coming to him in confession and repentance. So closely associated with the previous is the need to come to worship aware of our sins. We really should only come to worship having agreed with God about our faults and, ha- and having asked his forgiveness for them through Christ. Yes. Now that may be done before worship as part of preparing for it. It can be done immediately in the moments before worship. I know pastors who say something like the Apostles' Creed at that point, reminding themselves that the Holy Spirit is real, and so is the forgiveness of sins. (laughs) In this way, they admit their dependence on the Spirit and their need for fresh cleansing. The confession of sins should be part of public worship. Now, that can be done in many ways. A separate prayer of confession or included in an opening prayer or a different prayer. But to come into God's holy presence, not alert to our defilement, is not treating God as holy. We're saying, in effect, my sins really aren't very important. God, you showering me with love and grace and blessings. That's what this is all about. And my sins are in no way a hindrance to that. That is not sanctifying God. It is minimizing your sin. A fourth and final way is by coming to him with an offering of obedience. It's not enough for you to put off sin, you need to put on righteousness in all of life, right? That includes worship. The Lord delights in obedience more than sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15, 22. In several places in the New Testament, obedience or good works is likened to a worship offering to God. When we give to the needs of others, when we walk in love toward one another, these are acceptable offerings. And surely it is more pleasing to God when you come to him in public worship, having walked in his ways to some degree in the previous week, than if all you did was sin, 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 sin all week. Now there's no merit in these good work offerings, but they do display your discipleship. Yes. They show sincerity of commitment. So, for example, when in public worship you give your offering, you're not only obeying God and loving your neighbor, you are treating God as holy. You are striving to be holy because he is holy. This is one more way of sanctifying him. These are just a few thoughts on how we treat, how we can treat God as holy and come as holy people to public worship. Now, in finishing up here, 
I want to remind you of something I'm sure you already know, have already experienced. But if you develop convictions in matters like this, especially the non-negotiability of worship on the Lord's Day, the world and much of American Christianity, which is another way of saying the world, (laughs) will oppose you. Let me list in summary fashion just a few of the ways that, that this will come against us so you're prepared. And again, this is suggestive, not exhaustive. Some of these could involve hours of teaching and discussion. Here are a few to get you thinking. I'm going to give you four ways, uh, ways of thinking that characterize our age. And all of these war against God being worshipped in holiness. First, laxity and casualness. Public worship for many self-described Christians is infrequent, unimportant, and without any preparation. It's something men define rather than God. But all of that is contrary to the holy character of God. So fight against laxity and being overly casual in God's presence. Secondly, uh, you will find that our age, if you begin to act this way, you will find that our age is characterized by being quick to charge you with legalism. If you're committed in any deep, regular way to God's worship, if you put it before, for example, the great American idol called sports, or other weekend events, you'll be called a legalist. And what I would urge you to do is know your Bibles, commit yourself to obeying God, and ignore what people say. That's good, brother. That's good preaching. You might even want to think about whether the term weekend is an overtly Christian concept. I'm not saying you can't use that word, but... There's a, there's a one day plus six that my New Testament teaches me. It doesn't teach me groan through five and then go fulfill myself for two. Amen. That's, good that's, that's not what our Lord demands, requires, or is worthy of. Yes. Obedience to God is never legalism. It's simply reverencing him as Lord. Yes. A third one, and this has been true throughout history, but it's, it's true now and it's becoming more true, and it's what I've called government overreach. Government since the fall has a beastly character according to the book of Revelation. It considers itself to be the savior of men. And so in our nation, in many places, it recently dictated if worship was allowed and what its elements could be. Singing and partaking of the supper were disallowed in many states. Whatever your view of the COVID debacle is, and I really have no interest in debating that, it's obvious 
that even a government as generally law-abiding as ours is wants to exercise rule in worship. That idolatry is contrary to the crown rights of Jesus Christ to rule his church, including or especially public worship. Here's a fourth and final area. False religions, including false Christianity. That, of course, is all around us. True Christianity is practiced by a very small percentage of our nation. False religion easily wins hearts with its toleration of whatever the latest sin fad is. These synagogues of Satan produce false worship and they influence true churches. And the spirit of our age is utterly contrary to a holy God receiving holy worship from a holy people. And so our Lord calls us to resist these, to set him apart in our hearts and worship him in holiness. Now that's my sermon But I know Brother Ken won't let me off the platform if I don't tell you at least one Baptist history story. So since I don't want to be tackled, I'm much too old for that. I'm going to give you a a no-charge extra here at the end. All right? One of my heroes of the faith is a man named Thomas Hardcastle. If you listen to my particular Pilgrims podcast through CBTS, which I would encourage you to do... um, one of the early several episodes involved telling the story of this man. He was the pastor of Broadmead Baptist Church in Bristol in the 1670s. Of course, at that point, the nation's government had outlawed worship outside of the Church of England and all outside preaching. Well, of course, Thomas did both. And he went to prison seven times uh, for a total of two or three years at least, maybe a bit more. This would have been the same time period that more famous men like Bunyan were in prison. But Hardcastle understood that persecution is a necessary and natural part of the Christian life. That worship was much too important to bow the knee to King Charles II. And that commitment to public worship and Christ's true church were worth it. And he died a young man, left a wife and children because of the Damage to his body that the horrific prisons of the day exacted upon him. One of my favorite all-time quotes is from him, and with this I'll close, and it relates to what I've been speaking on. The greatest safety for the Christian lies in duty and keeping close to it. Is preaching and meeting together a duty only when men allow us? 
Or is it an indispensable duty at all times? He goes on. The gospel makes no exception or suspension. Beloved, it is now high time for us to be in good earnest for religion. That is public worship. Get the love of the world more out of your hearts and the love of God more into your hearts. And this will make you willing to part with everything rather than to part with him, his word, or worship. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we do, by your grace, love you and adore you. And we want to give you the public glory that is due your name in worship. We ask that you would help us to do this tomorrow with your people. And that we would in every way prepare and be in good earnest about religion. For we know that these are the marks of being in Jesus Christ and will end in good fruit of being in your presence forever. We thank you and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.